So a couple months ago, uh, my youngest daughter was uh, coming home from a basketball game one night at the school where she's a counselor at and uh, wasn't paying attention at coming up to a stop sign and ran into the back of a, uh, a Dodge pickup truck that had a hitch and destroyed the front of her car and they totaled it. So we began uh, on the search for a replacement. And she had a list of cars that she wanted uh, us to consider or for her to consider. I didn't buy it for her. She bought the car. Uh, but we began to look at all of these cars and we began to see all of the different things that the sort of newer cars have these days. And, uh, you know, we, we looked at uh, Jukes and, and we looked at these others. And, and I was looking at Facebook one day and up pops this, uh, this Subaru Crosstrek, which I've never been a fan of Subarus. I think they're ugly personally. Um, Sorry, I hope I don't offend anybody that owns a Subaru. Uh, but, but this one really wasn't bad as far as Subarus go. And, uh, and so we talked to the people that owned it down in Colorado, and, and we ended up getting it. And uh, I ended up driving it to Waco, Texas to her. And in this drive, I'm, I'm playing with and learning all of the new things that this car has. And as I'm driving down there in this Really pretty nice. I mean, it, it's a 2017 Crosstrek, though it had 165,000 miles on it. So they, so they drove the, you know, they drove it a lot. Uh, just broke in for us, honestly. Um, but as I'm driving it to Waco and I'm finding out all the cool new things that this thing does. I mean, you set the cruise and you come up behind somebody and it slows down by itself. And you pull over and then it speeds back up to the speed you had set. All of that. Our car doesn't do any of those things. And, and the more that I drove her car, the less I liked my car. <laughs> right? Now, our car is paid for. Um, you know, our car still has a good 100, 125,000 miles in it, I'm sure. But at that moment in time, I didn't like my car anymore. I, was, I became jealous of other people that had newer cars and, and you know, Cars that actually tell you the temperature outside, mine doesn't do that. Um, it's a 2011, it's really not that old, honestly. Um, but it just doesn't have any of those bells and whistles. And I, what happened was I lost my contentment in my car because I began comparing it to other fancier, more expensive cars. See, what we're talking about this morning is the sin of comparison. Uh, the Ten Commandments refer to it as coveting other people's possessions. Uh, the list uh, of the seven deadly sins calls it envy. Uh, well, our modern take this morning here is comparison. And it's, it's something that we all struggle with every day. Uh, very much like entitlement that we talked about a couple weeks ago. We swim in this. We breathe in this. Uh, advertisers, the media promotes it. I mean, they want us to be discontent with what we have so that we'll want something else. And what happens is um, we begin to compare everything. We compare our salaries and our houses and our cars. We compare our clothes, our likes on Instagram. We compare our job titles. We compare our kids. We compare our organizations. We compare our moralities. We compare our gifts. We compare our social lives, our appearance. We compare everything in our lives because we so desperately want to have the best and, and the most and the more than 
the next guy. And what I believe is true of everyone in this room is that we're all searching for our best life possible. We all want to live our best life possible. The problem is, the danger with comparison is that when we compare our best life, we we think that our best life actually belongs to somebody else. We want their life, not our life. And we begin to compare. And as we look at them and the things that they have, we begin to hate ours. Uh, Comparison will convince you that the best life is really somebody else's. And it keeps us from living our own. Uh, It will blind us to what God is doing right in front of us. It, It will keep us from seeing the good gifts that that he's giving us that are smack dab right in in front of us because he's giving us gifts to enjoy. But we're too busy comparing them to what our neighbor has. You know, as parents, uh, at Christmas time, we give our children gifts and we've probably, as parents, all heard some of these things before. As our children open their presents, they begin to look around the room, uh, if you have more than one child, at the gifts that the other uh, siblings are opening. And, And if they feel slighted in any way, Uh, you know, it's like, how come their present is bigger than mine, or how come they got more than I did, or why is theirs cooler? I want those. As adults, we sound exactly the same. Uh, And when we compare, we will be prone to despair. Uh, Our creator God knows this which is exactly why he warns us against it and why he wants to root it out of our lives. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, it says this, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. See, all of God's commands um, are not trying to keep us from something good. They're trying to give us something good. Uh, He's trying to protect us. Uh, In fact, in that commandment, he's trying to protect us from the sin of comparison because comparison will steal our joy and it has the potential to wreck our life. Uh, If you would turn with me to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, and and Jesus here is illustrating as he often does, the dangers of sin, and he points us in the right direction. And in this parable that we're looking at today, he's doing just that. And in this series, he is trying to open our eyes to the ungodliness in our own life that we have simply become comfortable with and have allowed to be there. Now, here's the context of Luke chapter 18. Jesus is with some of the most influential, powerful people in society at that time. Uh, They were successful, they were wealthy, they were righteous. Um, He was with the people that all the other people would compare themselves to. He is is with, if we go back further in in Luke, uh, he's with the Pharisees. He's talking to the Pharisees. This parable he's giving to the Pharisees. And, And these are people that everyone else wanted to be like. And this is what he says, Luke 18, beginning in verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. 
The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. So let's stop there. Jesus is with the Pharisees. They're highly regarded. They're successful, but they were stuck in the sin of comparison. So he steps up and he calls them out on it. He says, look how you guys are living. Not to embarrass them, but that, but that they might be free from sin. And that's what he does for us as well. He knows that whenever we're living with sin, it does not lead to our best life. And specifically here, he knows that whenever you're dealing with the sin of comparison and envy, it will lead you, it will not lead you to your best life. So what does comparison look like? Uh, how do we know if we have it? How, how do, do you tell if you have this sin of comparison in your life? Well, it's described right here in the text in verse 9. Comparison looks like this. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else. You see, for these people, their mindset was clear. Their view in life was clear. It's me versus them. Um, what we're constantly questioning, what we constantly ask ourselves as we live in this sin of comparison is, am I better than everybody else? Am I more influential than everyone else? Uh, am I more well-liked than everyone else? Am I more wealthy how am I doing compared to everyone else? And our life distills down to competition, competing against other people, which is the first thing we learn from this passage. That's number one. Comparison views life as a competition. Viewing life as a competition just keeps getting worse and worse and worse in our world. I mean, I, uh, this was a couple years ago. I was surprised as I was watching a football game what sort of analytics of each player they were putting up on, on the screen. I mean, I had never seen players analyze this much before, and they were comparing them to, to each other. And I can't even imagine being an athlete in one of those sports and then watching your game later and seeing how they compare you to others and, and what they're saying about you. Uh, in fact, uh, you, can find, uh, you can find scouts going to elementary school games today. They, they have them ranked nationally at every age, fifth grade, sixth grade, eighth grade. I mean, there are high school kids getting offers from colleges when they're sophomores and juniors in high school. It's ridiculous. Our world has taken this to an unhealthy place. I mean, and, and we see it, we see it sort of innocently on, on the playground, right? Uh, John and the, they're getting, kids are getting ready to play a, a game of touch football and, and, uh, and let's say Johnny and uh, Mary are captains. Okay. So the captains are like, okay, rock, paper, scissors. And they rock, paper, scissors. And it's like, okay, Mary, you go first. And you got all these kids standing there, right? And you got Mary and you got John up here. And Mary says, I pick you. And what are they doing? In their minds, they're comparing all of those kids and they want to pick the best one. And of course, there's always somebody who gets picked last, right? That's the unfortunate thing that happens when they do it that way. What they really should do is go one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. Okay, ones and threes, you're together. Twos and fours, you're together. But that's not how we normally do it. That's not how the kids do it, I bet. Maybe under the instruction of a teacher, 
Uh, but inevitably, they end up evaluating and comparing. Coaches evaluate players at practice. How hard are they working? Are they lazy? Uh, who's the best starting five? And, and why do they do that? They do that because they want to win. Now, I'm not saying competition is bad. I'm not saying wanting to win is bad. But what happens uh, is it gets completely carried away. The pressure, the money, it infiltrates every aspect of life. Every aspect of life. Comparison views life as a competition. And when I get sucked deep into competition and comparison, I really, 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 really want to win. Uh, I'm just being honest. I really want to succeed. And at the same time, just as much as I really want to succeed, I want that other guy to fail. I want him or her to fail. Uh, this week, as I thought about this, um, I've had, I've had cases where it's been a couple years when pastor Ty was here, we played Frisbee golf all the time together a, a lot. Um, and when I play Frisbee golf, I want to throw the disc farther. I want to be more accurate into the basket than the other guy. And if I get a good throw off, I mean, it's a hundred yards. I mean, I'm, I may not say it out loud, but I'm like, yeah, that was a really good throw. And when the next guy gets up to throw, I'm thinking to myself, oh, I hope he throws it into the alfalfa field. As Ty, and I mean, I, I literally struggled through this as he and I would compete against each other because um, he was always just a little bit better than me, and I didn't like that. Uh, I wanted to be better than him. You know, I'd get a really good long putt in, and he'd say, great shot. He'd get a really long putt in, and I'd be thinking to myself, shoot, I wish he'd have missed it. <laughs> you see, we laugh at that. But, but what happens is we begin to get our value and our self-worth from the ability to beat the other guy. Uh, because that's what we want. We want to feel valued. We want to, to feel worthy. And even if it, it can be boiled down to a simple game of disc golf, that effort of trying to be better than the other guy is exhausting. And it doesn't just apply to sports. It applies to everyday life. It's, it's why for some of, you, some of you, your life is exhausting. It's because you've turned your life into a competition. You're always trying to prove your worth. You're always trying to prove that you are better than the next guy. Because today, we don't just compete and try to get to the top of the games. No, no now it's my house is bigger and better than the next guy. It's, it's my uh, vehicle is newer and better than the next guy's. Or... Or how many zeros are in your salary compared to others? Or how many Facebook friends do you have? How many people do you actually interact with? Or is, is your corn planted straighter than the neighbors? Trust me, farmers look. It's why my dad wouldn't allow me to plant corn. Because back then we didn't have GPS. You didn't just push a button and it went straight. Back then, it was, the, it was the marker and the guy behind the, the wheel keeping it straight. And, you know, you can't be doing this. And I just really struggled with that. It was better for uh, water usage, though, because my dad would say, water couldn't run down those rows. 
See, we turn our life into a constant competition. And when that happens, it will inevitably bring comparison and exhaustion. Now, you might still be wondering uh, if this is a form of ungodliness in your life. Okay, here's, here's how, a way to know that if you struggle with the sin of comparison, and it's, it's what I just uh, alluded to. If, if you've turned your life into a competition, it's this, a telltale sign. That's that you really want to succeed and you really struggle with celebrating somebody else's win. You really want to play on that team and you really want to be the starter. And when somebody else gets chosen for that, you can't congratulate them for earning that spot. All you can do is wish that they lose it and that somehow you can get it. When they get a new car, when their kid succeeds, when, when they get a boyfriend, when they get the house of their dreams, you can't celebrate their successes because their success is simply a reminder to you that you got to work a little bit harder to keep up with the Joneses. If you're going to prove your value and you're going to prove your worth, you have to be better than they are. Your value is defined by how much better you are or how much more you have compared to all of the people around you. Now, this isn't just a Western problem. It's a people problem. It's a humanity problem. In fact, this sin of comparison and envy has been around from the beginning of time. Uh, we can go through the Old Testament. The, the book of Genesis actually tells us over and over. In Genesis chapter 4, Cain kills his brother Abel. Why? Because Cain is jealous at the offering. The, his, uh, Abel's offering was uh, accepted by God and his was not. And he kills his brother because of it. In Genesis chapter 27, Jacob and Esau start a bitter sibling rivalry because Jacob had what Esau wanted or, or the other way around. I'm not even sure as I read that story who's supposed to get what. But, but they end up in this bitter rivalry. In Genesis chapter 29, Rachel and Leah, they're both married to one guy named Jacob and they grow envious of one another. Because while Leah is able to give birth to kids, Rachel isn't able to give birth to kids, but Rachel is the prettier of the two. So each of them has what the other wants and there is a tremendous amount of conflict in their relationship. Genesis chapter, three, uh, Genesis chapter 37, Joseph is sold into slavery. Why? Because his brothers compared his, his life and how, his, how their dad loved him and, and how he treated him to theirs. And they didn't like it. He got more attention from dad. In the New Testament, it's the same story, right? And, and you know, after the last couple weeks, what illustration I'm going to use for that. It's the disciples. They did this often, didn't they? Who's number one? Who can sit at your left and who can sit at your right? They, they were comparing each other. Luke 9.46 is an example of it. An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. It's the sin of comparison. It's like we have this sickness where we can't help but compare ourselves to everyone else. It's this mindset of it's me versus the world and we turn everything into a competition. And if you feel like you don't struggle with this, uh, that's great. Uh, that encourages me that you don't struggle with this. But it may be that your struggle of comparison just might look and feel a little bit different than what I've already mentioned. Because there's typically two different buckets of comparison. There's one bucket of comparison that is more the materialistic possession 
uh, bucket of comparison. And there's another one, and it's the other one that Jesus uh, is talking about in the parable that we're looking at today, and that is a moralistic comparison. It's not that I want what they have, it's that I'm better than they are because I don't do what they're doing. Or I have made different decisions in my life, more, more godly decisions. And that's right where the Pharisee struggled. He was a moralistic comparer. Com- comparison views life as a competition. So now let's begin to move into uh, what are the effects of the sin of competition. Verse 11, look at that. Let's read it again. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. This Pharisee is comparing himself to others around him. He is a religious leader. He he is one who, who everybody looks up to. He is supposed to be diligently following the word of God, yet the only thing he can focus on in his interaction with God and his prayer to God is himself. Not God, but himself. Now, I want to compare that to another prayer in Scripture, a prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. We call it the Lord's Prayer. And, and let's think about where the focus of that prayer is. Uh, this is it. I just want to read it to you. Uh, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Now, who is the focus of that prayer? Right? It's it's God. Uh, Think about the key words in that. Uh, Our Father, thy name, thy kingdom, your will. Jesus, Jesus said this, this is how you ought to pray to our heavenly father. Yet the guy who says he knows and loves God the most and is to teach the people how to do the same, where is his focus? He's using words like I, I, not like other, I, even like this, I fast a tenth of all I get. The only person he can think of is himself. He doesn't say, God, I thank you that you're good, that you're kind, that you're forgiving, that you love me, that you're merciful, that you've given me a family and breath in my lungs and forgiven me a sinner. But he instead says, thank you that I'm not like those other people. That I'm more diligent. I'm more generous. I'm more sinless. God, thank you that in the game of life compared to everyone else, I'm winning. You see, this shows us what comparison does. It crushes relationships. Comparison crushes relationships. He can't think of anybody else. He's so trained in the brain to just think, how am I doing? What am I doing? This, uh, what am I doing? This is about me. Am I good enough? Do I have more? Am I more influential? He can only think about himself. And it's crushing his relationships with other people. See, he's in the temple. 
He's not there alone because there's a tax collector nearby. There are many others there who are listening to him pray this prayer. Do you think it's encouraging to other people to hear him say, I'm glad, God, thank you for not making me like those other people? People followed the Pharisees, but instead of caring for people, he crushes them. Rather than drawing them nearer to God, he pushes them away from even himself. Because on that day, the only thing that mattered to him was not that they knew how beautiful and good their God is, but that instead, he was winning. He had the most. He was the best. See, this is what comparison will do. It will crush our relationships because when our life is a competition, everyone else's turns, everyone else turns into the opposition. Now here's a present day example of what this can look like. A pastor was talking to a friend and this friend and his dad were really wealthy. I mean, they were really well off, um, really successful. Um, He had an amazing house. Uh, I don't know what he did, but he was really, really wealthy. So he tells his pastor, this is what he says, I'm absolutely exhausted. And the pastor asks him why. And he says, well, I've got a job and, and it's a really good paying job. It's, it's a really, really impressive job. And he says, I'm just having to work really, really long hours um, at work and I don't get to see my wife very much. I don't get to see my kids very much. I'm absolutely burnt out. And he goes on and he says, recently we bought this house and it was probably a little bit more out of our price range than, than we should have bought. So I'm just having to keep up. I'm, I'm having to, to stretch for us to even pay for it. And, in, and then also he had recently made a different investment. One of those kind of get rich quick investments that if it had gone well, it would have been great, but it didn't. The deal kind of went south and, and, uh, and he's just burnt out and exhausted. And he asks this pastor, what should I do? And the pastor answers, I I don't know, maybe start with your job. I know it's a good job, but it sounds like a lot of your exhaustion comes from your job. You're working long hours, you're not seeing your family, you're not spending time with your wife. What if you quit your job and found something else? Uh, You could quit and you'd have 10 companies willing to hire you. How about you quit your job and just find something else? And this is what he said, and it's, this is the telling part. He says, I can't quit my job because I want my kids to be raised in the same way that I was. Now think about that. He's burnt out, exhausted. He's not spending time with his wife. He's not spending time with his kids. And why? Because he's comparing himself to his dad. He wants his kids to have just what he had. And in that statement, he's saying, I need to be just like my dad. And it's destroying his life. See, comparison views life as a competition, and competition crushes our relationships. Now, so, so what do we do then to kill it? How do we kill competition and comparison in our life? Well, this Pharisee had just prayed a prayer of comparison, and one of the people he compares himself is to a tax collector. Uh, Look at verse 13, and we'll take a look at what the tax collector does. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, have mercy on me, 
a sinner. The Pharisee was comparing himself to everyone else around. The tax collector was comparing himself to who? To God. He was only seeing God and himself. He wasn't thinking about anybody else. In that moment, it was him and it was God. He was the only sinner that he could think about because when he viewed a holy and perfect and righteous God, he was absolutely wrecked to his core. Which is why his prayer was approved by God and the Pharisees was not. Because the tax collector's prayer was focused on God. It wasn't him comparing himself to everyone else. Jesus says in the end of this parable that the tax collector that day was justified before God. Verse 14, I tell you that this man, and this is Jesus talking, rather than the other went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So if we want to be free from sin, free from all of it, but especially the sin of comparison, we must humble ourselves before God. Number three, comparison is killed by humility. By humility, how do you become humble? Well, it's really actually pretty simple. You compare yourself to someone who's bigger and better and greater and faster and stronger than you are. That's how you keep your humility. It would be humbling for me to to play basketball against LeBron James. I mean... There's been quite a few times in my life where I've thought I was pretty good at basketball. Uh, Probably even some times where I thought I was the best player on the court. You put me on a court one-on-one with LeBron James, um, that's going to be pretty humbling. Or you put me uh, against Josh Allen on a football field. I mean, when I was a senior in high school, I was the starting quarterback of our football team. We didn't win a game that season. Um, In my defense, see, this is the whole comparison competition thing, right? To my defense, I was the quarterback, not because I could throw. I have small hands. You know, I'm missing a finger. Um, (laughs) Not because I could throw, but because I was the fastest guy on the team. Our line was terrible. It was three steps back and run for your life. (laughs) You see, compared to those other two guys... I'm not the best, and I will never, ever be better than they are. And that's pretty humbling. That's a pretty humbling thing. So here's the thing. Instead of comparing or being humbled by being compared to others, and we should honestly be willing to be humble when other people are better than us, we really should just, wow, that was great. Really, honestly, that was a great throw. And mean it. I don't care if that throw is the one that's going to beat me. It was a great throw. Nice job. Nice hole-in-one. You know how many hole-in-ones I've ever gotten in my life? I'm sure it's because I don't play that much. No, I... (laughs) See, here's the thing. Our response should be that of the tax collector. We don't compare ourselves to other people. We compare ourselves to God. And as we do, as we compare our holiness to his holiness, as as we need his forgiveness and strength and grace and patience, that's where we need to be. Another great human example of this 
uh, similar to the tax collector, is found in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah is, is a prophet from God. He has a vision of God. He, he gets to see God. And keep in mind, this is a good man. This is a prophet of God who God has speaking for him. And in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5, in this moment, Isaiah cries, Woe to me! I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. You see, when our eyes see the king, we realize that we aren't the king. And we don't have to be. We don't need to be. When our eyes see a righteous and holy God, we can only think uh, about the ways in which we're not holy. <laughs> when our eyes see a, perfectly, uh, a perfect heavenly father, we can only think about the ways in which we are imperfect, which which is a problem for us because a holy and perfect God can only accept that which is perfect and holy. And where does that leave us? It leaves us wanting for a savior, for a rescuer. So honestly, what does it matter in how much better I am from Farmer Joe down the way? When I compare myself to a perfect and holy and righteous God, it doesn't matter. That other stuff does not matter. Where, what matters is where I am in relation to God. What matters is how much worse I am from Jesus of Nazareth. If, if salvation was merely comparing ourselves to Jesus and trying to somehow outweigh the good from the bad, in order to get approval, I mean, Scripture is very clear that, that we all fall short of the glory of God. That, and we know that we're not perfect. Perfect. Even if we lined up, look, even if everyone in this room and we piled all together all the best things that we've ever done and we put those on a scale opposite the side of my life and the worst things I have done, they would still not outweigh the worst. They, they would, the good would still not outweigh the bad. It's just impossible. We would still have lust and lies and gossiping and comparison and envy and greed because we know we're not good enough to get in. And this is what scripture says. Since we're not perfect, since we can't outweigh the bad, we are deserving of wrath, not salvation. We are deserving of punishment. We deserve punishment, not paradise. And that's a humbling thing to realize. Dare I say it's even terrifying. But as Jerry Bridges says in the book, Respectable Sins, if we are discouraged by our sin, we need to remember the gospel. Though your obedience to God's law is defiled and imperfect, Christ's obedience is perfect and complete. And God has not only forgiven you your sins, both the subtle and the not so subtle, he has also credited to you that spotless obedience of Christ. God wants to work in you and with you to deal with your sin. But he does so as your father, as your loving father, not your judge. Judgment has been rendered, and Jesus Christ took it for you and for me. No, this is great news for us. This is 
the gospel. Hebrews 10, 14, for by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. And then in verses 17 and 18, he, then he adds, their sins and lawless acts, I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. It's been taken care of. You see, while you weren't good enough for God, he was good enough to save you. Now, the only comparison that matters is where you were versus where you are now. Because while you were lost before Jesus, after you have surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, you have been found. At, at one time you were blind, but now because of Jesus, you can see. While you were an orphan, now because of Jesus, you have a family. And when we realize that, that, that we deserve nothing, but in his kindness and mercy, he's given us everything, it humbles us. And it puts us in the place where we need to be. And it helps us to stop comparing ourselves to everyone else and everything else. The goodness and graciousness and kindness and forgiveness of our God takes place of all the things that we want to try and be the greatest at. We can stop thinking about what our neighbor has when we compare ourselves to a good and holy and mighty God. Our forgiveness through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, through the death and resurrection of Jesus and our surrender to him, our forgiveness is complete. In Romans 8, 1 and 2, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. It's humbling when we compare ourselves to a perfect and holy God, but in, in comparing ourselves in that moment as we surrender, as the tax collector did, we, we recognize that, that we are lost without him, but in that moment we realize that he is a loving father. If you are in Christ Jesus, he is no longer your judge. He is your father. And he's teaching you and training you and, dis, you know, um, disciplining you. Not as a judge, but as a loving father. Who not only wants to see you succeed, but has already succeeded on your behalf. What is comparison? Comparison views life as a competition. What does comparison do? It crushes relationships. And how do we kill it? With humility. With humility. The band worship team, come on up here, back to the stage. Um, as I said in the beginning, all of us, every single person in this room, I think we're seeking to live our best life. And what comparison does is it convinces us that somebody else has that life. And that we somehow need to supersede them. We, we must take action. It's not enough to sit here this morning and realize, yep, 
I, I struggle with the sin of comparison and walk out those doors, come back next Sunday, hear another thing and say, yep, that's me and not take a step, not make a decision, not to take action to reverse course in what we have become comfortable with in our life. And in doing that, in the power of the Holy Spirit, we need to take action to not compare what we have to what they have or who they are. Our job is to follow Jesus and trust him. And we can always trust him. We deserve death. We deserve death. But he has given us life. He has given us eternal life. And we don't need to search for the best life because we know we have the best savior. We don't need to search for the best life because we know we have the best savior. Let's spend the rest of our lives following him. Now, before we close with a song um, that speaks to God's incredible blessings to us, and Bob has a few comments about that too. Before we sing, I want us to stand and slowly pray the Lord's prayer together putting the focus where it needs to be before we sing this final song. And, and I'll try to maybe get us into a, a slow pace here. Uh, let's pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. So this song...